So the point, who was it? So the point, the point of this. Why is it that all, no, that is, I was going to say, all the troublemakers are on the left side, but Fred and Francis are not here. The point, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> the point is, I mean, I want to be, I've got to make the point, I haven't quite made it, but um, the, the section three ends with everything that everybody had lived for gone. I can't put it strongly enough. I grew up with it. Those wonderful descriptions of the long corridor of memories, and, and remember the description of the evening sitting down with Sam as the hunter and, and hearing the stories and his description of the stories. He said, the stories became real to him. They cast a shadow. So he's a boy. He's growing up. All of us were there. I hope to God all of us have not lost it, because too often we do, sadly. Um, you know, Christ said, unless you're like the children, we're supposed to keep that simplicity. And there's no way to do that without trust. And so much of when we grow up is we don't trust. I mean, we've got to get a hold of everything. Um, Ike lived for that. Um, he, what, how to describe it? Faulkner describes him as entering his novitiate. He enters a mystery. I mean, we have to remember and put all those things together. Um, he went through stages. He had to give up. Um, he, Sam said, you're not hunting right. He had to give up the gun. And then after that, he had to give up the watch. And so he's learning as he goes along. And at each stage, he's learning to give up something that gives him control over the world. It's the very opposite of Ahab. I mean, we're in a, yeah. It's the diametric opposite. It couldn't be more opposite. And then he has this moment. And it's important that we see it as it is, a bear and a, and a boy. And, and we've also been given indications that the bear has been watching him. So that nature is responsive. It's not this damn inert thing that the modern world has made it. Um, it's much closer to something God made. I mean, that's the way Faulkner keeps showing it to us. And when the bear dies and Boone dies, Sam, or um, when Lion, dies, and, and old Ben dies, Sam relinquishes his life. I mean, he, what's he, he's seen, and it's interesting because Sam's a hunter, right? He, he doesn't have a life without hunting. So the bear in some sense is a bear, but he's also an image of, Faulkner describes it as an anachronism or an apotheosis. It's an image of nature. It's indomitable. It can't be defeated. And yet, it's killed. And it comes at a time when we're made aware that the city and civilized life is encroaching, that the wilderness is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and it's being replaced so that man no longer has a sense of nature and the God who made it, he lives in his own world, in the city. I mean, we've been dealing with this from the beginning, so. At this point, and then when Kaz and, um, and, and Spain and um, Tenny come back, Sam's dead and buried. And so, is, so is Lion. And you know it's an hysterical moment. Boone and Kaz face off. I mean, it's almost violent. And the last words are Ike's words saying, leave him alone, God damn it, leave him alone. He's, he's so furious. He loved Sam. Sam taught him something that other people couldn't see. So, so what do we do at this moment? I mean, now we're going to, I mean, this is, we've got, we got to get into the fourth section. But I don't want to leave this without asking this question. What do we do now? Everything everybody has lived for is gone. Which is another way of saying, if you have a beloved, and you pursue the beloved, and you, and you, you consummate that relationship, what happens after consummation? Then what do you live for? I mean, it's a, pretty serious, it's a pretty serious thing here, the implications of it. It's going to take that form later when Sam and, and uh, Ike and Kaz are talking because they actually use a line to that effect from Keats' poem where they're talking about um, reality in just those terms. I'll come back to it in a, shortly. But 
So um, at this point, we're going we're to start the fourth section, but we've left this point where, where everything that everybody has lived for is gone. And I, and I don't want to miss this opportunity to make the connection with the disciples. All the disciples saw Christ as their Messiah, the Savior. He's on a cross and dead. Everything that they had lived for, crushed, gone. Now what? And I'm saying this because now go back to that quote of Eliot's. Because hoping you hope for the wrong thing. When you've lost everything, I mean, this is Christ. When you've lost everything you hope for, lots of people go out and take their lives. So the ser one of the serious questions we have to ask is, what's the ground of our hope? What is it that we're hoping for? Yeah? Um... Let me just repeat that before we go on. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love. For love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith. But the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought. For you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. And you'll, you'll go on. But... We're at that point here. Everything's gone. Um, I just want to, we've got a story ahead of us, but, it, but I want to mark this point because this is the center of the bear and it's setting us up for something eventually later because you know in section four, Ike is gonna relinquish his claim to the land and he's gonna do it in effort to try to undo this curse on the south. Um, he's 16. Um, when four opens, he's 21. He's legally, legally of age to now take possession of the land, and you know that he doesn't, it, and it gets turned over to calves. So let me stop for a second, okay? Any questions about that? That's where we've left off. Now we're going to be concerned with this, this conflict, this agon, agon, conflict, agony, this agon, this contest between calves and Ike on the land, okay? Um, it's important because, um, and it's interesting, we learn in, the, in section four, Ike is 16, remember when old Ben goes down and Sam dies. It's at 16 that he breaks into the commissary when Kaz is asleep and reads those leisures and discovers this horror. I don't know how you guys experience it, but when I experience it, I mean, it, it made Moby Dick look like a fairy tale to me, but um, anyway, that's where we are. Any questions before we start four? Five. Section four. Who's <laughs> any, any questions? Any? Okay, here's where, that was the easy part. <laughs> Section four. Okay, here we go. Um, <clears throat> I went over the themes just quickly. You've got them from last week. Let me just remember the theme of the land that's going to carry over here into section four, the hunt. Remember I, I asked you all to think about the hunt in terms of an analogy, that it's a metaphor for describing almost all activities in life because it's, it's pursuing something. It's me desiring something, wanting it. The dialect, the dialect, the agon, the contest between Kaz and Ike can be looked at as a kind of hunt. They're pursuing the truth and they're disagreeing. So this, the same tension that we felt between the hunter and the hunted, that they're after <coughs> something and their problems, they have to overcome them, exists here. There are all these problems except one of the differences here, the problems are massive. They're cultural, they're American, they're national. So the, the agon here, the agon, the, the hunt, the, takes on mythic proportions. I'm gonna come back to that in a second. But the land, the hunt, the city, was an image that we looked briefly at last time. The theme of education was really absolutely central to, to everything that we've been doing because Sam Fathers was 
essential to, to everything that happened to Ike to help prepare him to do what he's about to do. Language, we've talked about the language of the, of the work and how important it is and what Faulkner's doing, and the theme of enchantment. Those are all things we touched on. This week, I want to step back for a second and come at this a little bit more broadly and then focus on some passages here. One of the things that I, wanted, that I think is important for us to see in this fourth section is this. We've talked about the epic all along, going back, for those of you who've been here since the Iliad, the Odyssey, the, the Divine Comedy, those are all, Moby Dick is an epic. Remember that the epic is much larger in scale, it's national, it's different from a novel, typically. The novel takes a much more limited sphere. The epic is always national, um, for, it speaks for a people. In the ancient epics, the, typically, the, the epic world consisted of three parts the heavens, the earth, the underworld, the gods, the place of battle, and the underworld, where the dead were, remember? So it's inclusive, it, it covers the whole cosmos. That was true of Dante, yeah? Into the underworld, the, the, the world was made present in everyone because it kept referring to the world as we know it, and then the heavens. There were allusions to an epic past in Moby Dick, remember at the very beginning, Ishmael um, describes the, the orchard thieves, Adam and Eve who stole, and the first thump, the universal thump, the, the, the fall, and the fact that everybody's going to suffer, and that, that went right to the heart of the epic because what was at issue was Ahab's wound and the way that he dealt with it. And we talked about that a lot at length, that everybody, everybody's wounded in this world. One of the serious questions that we're asked to look at in, these works is what we do with our wounds, how we, how we deal with them. Um, repeatedly in section four, the thinking on both Kaz and Ike's part take us back to Eden and Canaan, because the south is likened again and again to Canaan, Canaan to the, the chosen people entering the chosen land. Um, that this was um, a favored land, and it's interesting to think about that because remember when, when we looked at the founding, the founding in, in New England was religious. The founding in the South was not, and yet the Southerners had this clear sense that this was a promised land. It was leaving um, the fallen Europe. It, it was going to make a new world. This was the new world. It was Adam having a new chance. So um, the move from the old, the, the old Catholic world to, modern, to America, the Renaissance, that was on the verge of the Renaissance, was the beginning of a new world full of hope and promise. And remember this, because this is, this is what, this is the term that focuses at the end of this story, this promise of what was gonna be. Um, um, relate that back in retrospect to what we just talked about a minute ago. All these hunters look forward to bringing down old Ben. Ike had nothing but promise. He's gone, now what? The disciples, all the Jews that gathered around Christ, flocked to him, watching him perform these miracles, and then he's gone. It looks to the end of this epic. What do you do when that happens in your life? I mean, how, how are we to look at Ike's choice? That's where we're gonna to get to finally. But. So, um, Faulkner's looking at the South as a land of promise, as a Canaan. Um, we see in America, we know from Melville and Faulkner that America has basically two cultures, the North and the South, and they're very, very different. Very, very different, radically different. And that difference, in some ways, <laughs> I'm gonna say widened after the Civil War. I know that goes contrary to what most historians are gonna say, or some historians. I'm gonna say widened for this reason. Flannery O'Connor, who was a Catholic modern 20th century Catholic writer, one of the few Catholic artists that's really made a name for herself in our time, she said about the South that um, after the South lost the Civil War, it, be, it, it had to deal with its sin in a way the North never had to. So the South has become self-conscious of itself in a way the North never did. And she saw that, I think, as a grace. 
Now stop and think about it this way. I, I know from our own experiences when we had struggles with our kids when we were younger and um, some things happened to a couple of our kids and <coughs> I don't want to go into the personal stories behind them but some real struggles. Um, and it got us involved in a, in a, um, um, a therapeutic center, drinking and alcohol and stuff like that. And, um, and I, what, a, what a, an amazing experience it was for me um, because one of the things I learned, being, our kids ran from the program. Susanna and I stuck around because it was such an amazing experience so, to be a part of it, to learn. Um, um, I, one of the amazing revelations that I had as a part of that program when we got involved in it was the realization that it's the people who think there's nothing wrong with them that usually are the cause of so many problems. That it's the people who think they're okay and the attitude that they bring, particularly the raising of kids, you know what that does to the raising. And I'll never forget that because one of the things the program did was open up family life and ask you to look at all the things you didn't want to look at. Um, so that's what's at issue here, truly, and I'm saying that, it, I mean, I want to see it, I put that out as broadly as I can. Flannery O'Connor said, I think rightfully, after the war, the South became self-conscious of itself. It became aware of its sins in a way the North never did. And what it did, I think, is, is produce the conditions that led to Faulkner. We don't have a comparable writer. Melville, but, but remember what I said about Melville. Melville and Hawthorne were the two writers that, that put themselves outside of the rest of that New England culture because the New England culture was becoming uni Unitarian, Emerson and all the rest. Both of them had this strong, what drew them to each other, what made them friends to each other is, both, they said this of each other, they both had this sense of the brotherhood of sin. <coughs> when Emersonian Unitarians were off in this world, it was without sin and they were on top of everything and you know that, that sort of I don't know what to call it, that liberal mind where everything is okay. And um, so, so what Faulkner's showing us, and we're going to see it in this discussion, because one of the things that emerges, particularly on Kaz's part in these arguments, is that um, how can God, how in the world could God have any thought of, of sending anybody in to help? He says the South is cursed because look at all these people. I, I takes the position. Maybe one person can change all this. And that's basically his argument. Maybe one person. Kaz is going, are you kidding? Look at this mess. And he keeps giving these examples of the mess that everybody's in. Um, so what f the amazing thing about Faulkner, he, he is not a politically correct writer. If he were a polit polit politically correct writer, he would be cutting edges and making judgments everywhere. He is constantly standing in a spirit of identity with everybody he touches. He never makes judgments. He's revealing characters as they are, helping us to see into them. But he does it with this extraordinary sense of this fundamental sin that we're all bearing. So there are two cultures, North and South. But one of the things that happened with the South, most of its major writers will say, is the South became aware of a fundamental problem in a way the North never did. And it led to some of the greatest literature in the 20th century. Um, Fogner talks about, <coughs> the narrator talks about three races, but I want to come to that a little bit later. Let me go to, wait, let me just see a touch. I want to look at the structure of, of what he does in terms of narrative structure in a second. When I thought about putting up an outline on the board tonight, I thought about putting number one, reading, number two, reading, number three, reading, number four, reading, number five. I'm not kidding. I was going to, I was going to, reading, 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 because you've been hearing me beat you over the heads with this, but at the center of this fourth section is, did anybody of you see that? I mean, was that even something you guys were aware of? What's at the center of it? Ike's reading these ledgers. Who else reads these ledgers? Nobody. Who's going to go back to those chronicles? They're dusty, yellowed, dusty, faded chronicles. Who wants to go back to that stuff? And yet, what he does represents a continuation that everything began with Sam to learn to see things that other people don't, 
took him to a depth that nobody else would take. As a matter of fact, his father, it, it becomes clear from the ledger, his father would not admit what happened. If you remember, though, I'll get to it. She committed suicide. Buck goes, committed suicide? What nigger? <laughs> you know, he can't admit it. Um, so there is this dark world that is beginning to open him. How? <laughs> Through reading. <laughs> and one of the problems that we're faced with, is, and I know this as reader, is you know how difficult it is to get through this section. Faulkner is making us work at this because it's a way of saying, we don't read well. We too casually think we know things. We, we have to work really hard at this um, if we're going to put it together. So repeatedly during the section that has to do with the reading of these ledgers, Faulkner's doing certain things with structures that, <laughs> that doesn't make our task any easier. So I want to look at some of those things. Um, yeah, let me just, let me just, let's look at some of those. How are we in time? Um, let's, let me stop. I'm gonna, I'm, what I'm going to do is go through some passages here and try to put some things together. Because I think once you see them, it, it, I, hopefully it'll open up the difficulties here in this section and make it a little bit easier for you. Any questions before we look at the text? Um, two, two, two passages um, that I want to look at before we start going through the actual text. Turn to page 271. Oh, let's see. Uh, do you remember? Do you know how? Two pages ahead. Or are you two pages? I'm two pages ahead. You're two. Mm -hmm. right. Which is? What passage are you looking at? It's that passage where it be. Um, it's the Abraham passage that I told you about earlier. Yes, if you could see Father and Uncle Buddy. That's on 270 for me. 269. So you're about a page. So I'm going to, sorry for this, but I'm going to give you a page and then if you'll go a page earlier and struggle with me. Okay, in the middle of my 171, in the middle of my 171, I'm going to ask something in a minute here. Um, God, in the middle of my 171, um, we know you do, okay. Um, Ike, for the first time in their argument, um, they've, they've moved away from talking about God and God's will and generalizations to Ike himself. And Ike is making the point now that one man might be able to do it, and he, and he makes the allusion to Abraham. <laughs> he says, <clears throat> Um, yes, if he could see father and uncle buddy and grandfather, he must have seen me too. And Isaac, born into a, lot, a later life than Abraham's, and repudiating immol immolation, fatherless and therefore safe, declining the altar because maybe this time the exasperated hand might not supply the kid from the chasm escape. That is, this, this time you might give him an out, an, an escape, all right, escape, until one day. Now go down a few lines. He's talking about the South, and then he says, um, and long summers to mature it, and serene falls to harvest it in short mild winters for men and animals, and saw no hope anywhere, and looked beyond it where hope should have been, where to east, north, and west lay illimitable, that whole hopeful continent dedicated as a refuge and sanctuary of liberty and freedom from what you call the old world's worthless evening and saw the rich descendants of slavery, females of both sexes, that is, um, people too given to emotion to espouse a position, I think is what's going on there. But, but it's that phrase, the old world's worthless evening. So here, in the, as part of the background to this discussion that we're going to look at, is Kaz's description of old Europe, this old, this old world's worthless evening, because America looked like a world of promise, like a new light, a new dawn, a new beginning. Now turn to 243, unless I want to just go through some passages here.
it begins, uh, and this this is 243, my page is the very beginning. You all have, is that, where are you on 242? 241. 241. This is the very beginning of section four. Mm -hmm. It begins, then he was 21. And notice, there it is, in medius race. Mm -hmm. then, then he was 20, well, what just happened? We're in the middle of things, then he was 21. We already know because we've been given the story. But it's lowercase, it's not capital, because we're in the middle of things. Grammatically, he's signaling, you know, this is what, what he's trying to do with language is make us aware of something to get out of these rigid notions about grammar so that language will serve another reality. Let, let me put this more generally now before we start because I hope this helps. For Faulkner, we already know this. He keeps moving back and forth between time. It's going to happen here, and I'm going to come to that because it's crucial to what we're about to see. He sees reality as multi-leveled. And what we learn, if we're taking him seriously, is that no moment occurs in our life, none, that doesn't carry the past with it in some way. No matter how much we try to get free of it, it's there. It bites us. No? I hope I'm not alone here. Otherwise, I don't know why we got a confession. I mean, we're asked to struggle to put it away, yeah? But it keeps, it keeps pushing, it's there. So to act as if it's not there is in some way not to be truthful. So language for him and the way he structures it, what he does to it, is trying to open these various levels of reality in exactly the way they are, even if we don't see them. And here's just a very obvious sort of example. Then he was 21. He could say it himself and his cousin juxtaposed not against the wilderness, but against the tame land which was to have been his heritage, the land which old Carruthers McCasland, his grandfather, had bought with white men's money from the wild men whose grandfathers without guns hunted it and tamed and ordered or believed he had tamed and ordered it for the reason that the human beings he held in bondage and in the power of life and death had removed the forest from it and in their sweat scratched the surface of it to a depth of perhaps 14 inches in order to grow something out of it which had not been there before and which could be translated back into the money who believed he'd bought it. It goes on. Um, let me ask you guys, um, wh what's the basic sin at issue here? If it, I don't think it's ever named that I remember, but but it's implied in all of this. What's the basic sin that he's dealing with here in man's response to the land? Pride. Pride, that's certainly, yeah. yeah. Thinking that, huh? pride, pride in that man thinks that man can. Can you specify the form that that pride takes? In that man thinks that he can own the land and yeah. manipulate it to his purposes. One is greed. Yeah, I was gonna say greed. The, and coveting, greed, and he's pointing to it here, that they do this to get money, and one of the descriptions of America that I'll get to of the North, if you remember that description, I'll come to it in a minute, he, he describes the, sort, the, the sin of the South as the sin of slavery, owning humans the same way they think they own the land, that's the problem, we talked about it. The sin of the North is machine-like, it doesn't own slaves. It goes back to the banking interests in Europe that are funding all this thing. So what's driving the North, as he describes it, is greed. What's, the, what's what Ike's wife's sin? You want to describe that, Doc? Because were, we were talking about it when we came to church today. When we sat, we were rushing away from home and as we were driving up, Suzanne would, had just been describing that scene, um, why don't you describe, if you can do it really quickly, just. The scene where Ike's wife tries to tell him that she wants, she wants the farm, she wants him to promise it to her, hopefully with a date, um, that he'll give it to her. And, um, he says, no, never. And so she does what he has been asking her to do since they were married, which was to take off all her clothes so he could actually see her body naked as well as be with it. And she does that. She takes off all her clothes and um, asks him to, again to promise the farm and he says no, never. And they have sex and at the end she says, 
that's it, I'm done. That son you wanted, if it doesn't happen after tonight, it won't be mine. Um, she's never going to be intimate with him again. Um, and I just, I was just shocked um, and outraged. Outraged. It's coveting. You know, she wanted the land, and the, there's that exchange where, I mean, this is, this is intimacy, this is sexual intimacy, so even sex gets, and we know that. Um, but she's, she says, if you're going to ever have a son, it won't be for me. So she denies him any paternity. Um, that's part of his relinquishment. Now, don't forget that, because, I mean, look at the, we're begin, we see the cost of it everywhere. Um, remember, here, Cass describes it in terms of escape, like you're being relieved of all these burdens. But what we'll see through the novel is that the cost of it is tremendous. It means giving up everything, and it's going to, I mean, it's going to, um, I mean, deeply affect his marriage, you know, as we'll see later. Um, so, the sin at issue here is this sense of possessiveness of the land gets carried over into human relationships. It, it's, it's there in the white-black relationship between slave master and slave. It's there in marriages. Um, and we've been watching it all along. And, and we've seen it in a particularly strong way in, in the way Faulkner presents the black characters because it's so clear that they're looked at as less than human, that that's what they have grown up with. Um, so, um, here at the beginning, he says quite clearly, he could say it, himself and his cousin juxtaposed not against the wilderness, but against the tame land. So when he sets himself against, here it is again, not the wilderness, right, not nature, but the land, the land that's been possessed. In the next paragraph, not against the wilderness, but against the land, not in pursuit and lust, but in relinquishment and in the commissary as it should have been, not the heart perhaps, but certainly the solar plexus of the repudiated and relinquished, the square gallery wooden building squatting <coughs> like a portent above the field whose laborers it still held. So the, the, the place where this agon, you know, you know what the word agon, I'm, I keep, I'm, agon, this was the word that the Greeks used to describe a conflict in the Greek tragedy could put between the character and whatever he was dealing with in opposition to. An agon is a conflict, but it's the word from which we get agony. What we're, what we're experiencing here between Ike and Kaz is an agon, a debate, a struggle, a contest. And it has to be seen that way because at the, at the root of it is this anguish, the cost of it all. And it takes place <laughs> appropriately in, in the solar plexus, not the heart, in, in the center of this commercial world, the marketplace, the, the commissary, where exchanges are facilitated. <coughs> um, on my page 245, relinquish, McCasland said, relinquish. You, the direct male descendant of him who saw the opportunity and took it, he goes on and said, um, this was passed down. Each, each um, heir received it, took responsibility for it, tried to develop it so that he could pass it on to his own heirs, which is what most of us do most of our lives. Um, and he acknowledges that he holds the inferior position because he comes through the female line. And then he says, um, I derive through a woman, the very McCaslin, and my name is mine only by sufferance and courtesy and my grandmother's pride in what you, in what that man accomplished whose legacy and monument you think you can repudiate. And he, this is what 245 for me, I can't repudiate it. It was never mine to repudiate. It was never father's and uncle buddy's to bequeath me to repudiate because it was never grandfather's to bequeath them to bequeath me to repudiate because it was never old Igmatubis to sell to grandfather for bequeathment and repudiation because it was never Igmatubis father's fathers to bequeath Igmatubi to sell to grandfather to any man because on the instant when Igmatubi discovered realized that he could sell it for money on that instant it ceased ever to have been his forever 
father to father to father, and the man who bought it bought nothing. Bought nothing, and he bought nothing. Because he told, now this is Ike's card, because God gave it freely. God didn't charge. And it, it wasn't validated by the financial worth placed on it. That's crucial to see. Because he told in the book how he created the earth, made it and looked at it and said it was all right. And then he made man. He made the earth first and peopled it with dumb creatures. And then he created man to be his overseer in the earth and to hold suzanery over the earth and the animals on it. His name not, not to hold for himself and his descendants inviolable title forever, generation after generation, to the oblongs and squares of the earth, but to hold the earth mutual and intact in the communal anonymity of brotherhood. Go down. Um, that nevertheless, Grandfather and McCaslin did own it, and not the first. Not alone and not the first, since as your authority states, man was dis dispossessed of Eden. Interesting. Go down a few lines from that passage. So let me say it, that nevertheless, and notwithstanding, old Carruthers did own it, bought it, got it, no matter, kept it, held it, no matter, bequeathed it. Else why do you stand here relinquishing and repudiating? Held it, kept it for 50 years until you could repudiate it, while he, this arbiter, this architect, this umpire, condoned, or did he, looked down and saw, or did he, or at least did nothing, saw and could not, or did not see, saw and would not, or perhaps, he would not see perverse, impotent, or blind, which he and just anyway, I want to say, notice the difference in the attitude. Kaz is a modern entrepreneur, skeptical about God, and in some ways, find the word, contemptuous, umpire, architect, umpire, condoned, and the glibness with which he talks about that gives away. I mean, he, he's Ike was appealing to the Bible. Kaz knows the Bible. But his way of talking about it is very different. He's a modern. I mean, he's looking at this in a very, very different way. Um, okay, hold on. So here, um, we have both of them taking two very, very different lines. And once they get through with the God part of it, and, and remember how much this, this um, awareness of a curse, um, the role that it plays in what we've been reading. I think if, I, if my recollection is right, it goes back to Molly early on when she came to um, Roth, remember, and said, um, I have to leave because he's cursed. Mm -hmm. So early on, that, that notion of the curse is introduced there. Here, it's going to be big time because um, later we're going to see, um, he's going to say, the South is cursed. And we're going to see how that curse plays out in a minute. Um, here, after they talk about um, God, um, I continues to talk in a very respectful way of his grandparents, I mean his father, because of what they did. Because remember, they freed the slaves before the Emancipation Proclamation. They built that cabin and went to sleep in it themselves. Mm -hmm and then let the slaves sleep in the house, even as they nailed it up every night. But they had freed them, given them their freedom. And we learned through the ledgers that very often they gave the slaves freedom and they didn't want it. So long before it became law, his father and uncle had already, in the goodness of their heart, wanted to honor that freedom by what they did. Um, <coughs> so I continues to talk about something good passing through them. McCaslin tends to focus more on the negative, and then he says, this, I've got 248, 249, and McCaslin, sons of Ham, you who quote the book, the sons of Ham, and he, there are some things he said in the book and some things reported to him that he did not say. You remember the sons of Ham, I don't know the, that part of the Bible very well, but the sons of Ham, remember um, Ham was the one who saw Noah naked? He was the son that came in after Noah you all remember that. <laughs> no? Wow. Even I know that. Um, he threw a cover over him. He backed up to him with a cover or skin or whatever, backed up to him, put the cover yes. on him 
then went out and told his brothers. Yes, yes. And then when um, Noah came to and he found out that son had done that, then he was, um, he raged at him. And cursed him. Cursed him. And cursed Cana. So the curse fell to Cana from Noah because of what happened. He got drunk. Yes. Noah got drunk. Yes. And um, in the, I mean, was out. And his yes. son came in and was shamed by what he saw of his father and covered him. And then when his father realized what had happened, and there's a couple of different readings on that from the Jewish tradition. Some of them relate that to something sexual because of the language that I, I don't want to, that may be sodomy or an illicit love took place somewhere there. But, but in any event, what we know from scripture just sort of literally is that he, um, he cursed Cana. So the Canaan land was cursed, received a curse from Noah. Um, now, turn to page 252. This is where we get the first entries to the ledger. And I want to try to straighten out some problems here because what, it's really interesting what Faulkner's doing here. Now hold on to this page. Um, now hold on to this page. I've got 250 where um, the last part of the discussion has it. Um, and he, yes, more men than father and uncle buddy, not even glancing toward the shelf above the desk, nor did McCaslin. So the last word of Ike is, yes, more than father, uncle buddy. Do you have that? 247 on the bottom. 247 at the bottom? Oh. <coughs> yeah, okay. Right Do you have that, yes, more than, yes. more men than father? Yes. Now look, watch what happens here. That's Ike speaking, right? Now hold on to this because this is where it gets torturous. That's Ike speaking, but suddenly it shifts to the narrator. Okay, we lose the voice. I mean, we ch we shift from the void, the the exchange between the characters to the narrator. Not even glancing towards the shelf above the desk, nor did McCaslin. They did not need to. To him, it was as though the ledgers in their scarred, cracked le leather bindings were being lifted down one by one in their fadings, and it goes or perhaps upon some apocryphal bench or even the altar or perhaps the throne itself. This has got a numinous biblical dimension to it for Ike. Um, the all-knowledgeable for the yellowed pages and the brown thin ink in which was recorded the injustice and a little at least of its amelioration and restitution faded back forever into the anonymous communal original dust. Now. Here's the voice that opened the very book itself. Remember, lowercase, very little grammar. Are you all aware of where we are here? Mm -hmm. The yellow page, you can see it, right? There's no caps. The yellow page is scrawled in fading ink. So we've left the dialogue. Now hold on to that just for a second. We left the dialogue, and then it, it describes the, um, the brothers, Buck and Buddy, building the cabin and, and mm -hmm. letting the Negroes sleep in the house and boarding them up. Mm -hmm. Now go on over on page 252 in the middle of the page where it says, they both looked as though they had been written by the same perfectly normal 10-year-old boy because neither his father or his uncle could spell or write. We know that from the, from the mm -hmm. entries. Um, had been written by the same perfectly normal 10-year-old boy even to the spelling except that the spelling did not improve as one by one the slaves which Carruthers McCaslin had inherited and purchased dash. Has everybody got that? No. Yes. Where are you? Where is it? 249. 249. Do you have that dash? Yes. Now just watch this because this is where, <laughs> this is, I'm not kidding, it gets torturous. Dash, right? He's just said except that the spelling did not improve as one by one the slaves which Carruthers McCuslet and inherited and purchased, dash. Now, now he starts describing the slaves, Theophilus and the others, and, and we get the first entries. Now, hold on to this, because this is not a part of the dialogue. We know later, and we're gonna see this in a minute, I got this because he snuck in 
to the commissary when Kaz was asleep and started looking at the books because he suspected something was wrong. So now we get these reports, right? Now let me just go through a, a couple of... <laughs> one of them is... Um, let's see, this is Percival, whom they bought, who turns out to be absolutely useless. <laughs> they offered they offered to pay money to get rid of him, but Percival doesn't want to leave. He keeps coming back. Um, the second, June 13th, how one dollar per year, that is to pay him off, it would take $265 to pay the debt for Who will sign his free paper? No, they can't get rid of him. And it goes on and on again like this, um, describing it's a comic sort of thing. Now look when it ends on page, I've got 254, it ends with a close parenthesis. Do you all have that? Yeah. Now where's the beginning of that parenthesis? It's back just a sentence ahead of the first entry. Do you all have that? Oh yeah. What page? It was a single page. Yeah. It's 250 the top. Okay. 250. Okay, do you all have that? So there's the open. Now hold on, because this is completed. There's the opening parentheses, right? Mm -hmm. Now remember, we left the sentence in mid-sentence. Carruthers McCuslin had inherited and purchased dash, and now look after that close parentheses took substance and even a sort of shadowy life. The antecedent to that verb is the sentence before that dash. <laughs> Have you got it? Has everybody got it? If you all got it, okay, just hold on. I would like you all to go back in that and look at it yourself because now just watch, just for a moment. Took substance and in even a sort of shadowy life with their... So, like Sam's stories... Here, let me have... This is real, like Sam's stories, this ledger, even though it's... What do we call it? Stenographic? You know, just a line or a name or two? It's beginning to take on a life. Well, Ica's going back and remembering these people like anybody with a memory of an aunt and uncle and, the brothers, the first. Remember, it all started with who? Buck and Buddy, Tenny's, Jim, Safanzava, um, or Tommy's Turl, rather. And then we get these. Um, these are the next ones that talk about um, what old Carruthers paid for Eunice. Um, I've got it on 255. Eunice bought by father in New Orleans, 1807, $650, married to Thucydides, 1809, drowned in Creek Christmas Day, 1832. The next one, on June 21st, drowned herself. And the first, June 23rd, who in the hell ever heard of a nigger drowning it? That's Ike Stab. He doesn't believe what he's just read. Because what's interesting, if you're following these, what you see is the brothers are talking to each other in the ledger. One brother will make a comment and the other brother will pick it up and respond to it. So they're talking with each other in the ledger. So we're actually getting a reading, a novel, unfolding in the ledger. Um, and then again, August 13th, drowned herself. And he thought, but why? But why? He was 16 then. It was neither the first time he'd been alone in the commissary, nor that now it goes on. It talks about as a, as a child going back as a child and even after 9 and 10. You all have the, are we together? Do you have the reading? Yes. Okay. Go down now. Then he was 16. He knew what he was going to find before he found it. He got to the commissary key from McCaslin's room after midnight when McCaslin was asleep. And with the commissary door shut and locked behind him, and the forgotten lantern sticking anew the rank dead icy air, he leaned above the yellow page and thought not why drown herself, but thinking what he believed his father had thought when he found his brother's first comment. Why did Uncle Buddy think she drowned herself? Finding, beginning to find on the next succeeding page what he knew he would find, only this was still not it because he already knew this. Thomasina called Tommy's daughter. This is the mother of Tommy's Turl, because Turl goes back to Tommy. This is, that's where Tommy got his name, Turl. He's Tommy's Turl. Thomasina called Tommy, daughter of Thucydides and Eunice, born 1810, died in child, 1833, and buried 
Um, either the stars fell, nor the next. Turl, son of Thucydides, Eunus, Tommy, um, Tommy born, 1833. Year stars fell, father will, and nothing more. Now go down. This is old Carruthers, who while capitulating almost every noun and verb, capitalizing almost every noun and verb, made no effort to punctuate or construct whatever, just as he made no effort either to explain or obfuscate the thousand dollar legacy to the son of an unmarried slave girl to be played only at the child's coming of age, bearing the consequence of the act of which there was still no definite incontrovertible proof that he acknowledged, not out of his own substance, but penalizing his sons with it, ch charging them a cash forfeit on the accident of their own paternity, not even a bribe for silence towards his own fame, since his fame would suffer only after he was no longer present to defend it, flinging almost contemptuously as he might cast a cast-off hat or a pair of shoes, the thousand dollars which could have had no more reality to him under those conditions than it would have had to the Negro, the slave, who would not even see it until he came of age, 21 years too late to begin to learn what money was. So I reckon that it was cheaper. This is Ike thinking to himself now. Right, so it's the narrator describing than Ike. Reckon it was cheaper than saying my son to a nigger, he thought, even if my son wasn't just two words. God, how sad. But there must have been love, he thought, some sort of love, even what he would have called love, not just an afternoon or a night spittoon. There was the old man within five years of his life end, long a widower, and since his sons were not only bachelors, but were approaching middle age, lonely in the house and doubtless even bored since his plantation was established now and functioning, there was enough money now, too much of it probably for a man whose vices even apparently remained below his means. There was the girl, husbandless and young, only 23, when the child was born. Now, what has I discovered? Is it clear? See any what? Can you? That his father, Ike's father, fathered the son by the slave, of the, his young slave woman, um, Thomas. Let's see. Yeah. Eunice's daughter. Who was his daughter? Thomasina. Daughter was yeah, was Thomasina. Yeah. He discovered. Who was his daughter? Sorry. His father had sex with a slave woman, treating her like chattel. He can pay her off. This is the this is what money does. That the thousand dollars is going to atone. He he had sex with Eunice, the daughter that they had together. He has sex with. What happens to her in the delivery of her child? She dies. She dies. Who's the child? Thomas Turrell. Who's the father? Now, do we know this with certainty? We don't know it with certainty. Well, I've just been reading. No, I just read it. You know, even that line. The, I mean, I tried to, where he said, couldn't know it infallibly, but. And, and, what, ha and what, what happens to Eunice? She commits suicide when? Christmas Day. On the day her daughter delivers? No. Her, well, it's six months before. Six months so before. Probably the day she discovered her daughter was pregnant. Yeah. So, so here, here's Carruthers, here's Carruthers McCaslin, has sex with Eunice. They have a child, Thomasina. They have sex, the old man and his daughter now. And um, she gives birth to a child and dies. And the assumption, I mean, one of the questions we have to ask is whether that is in his son too, produced by incest. And when Eunice, who has been married to Thucydides for all those years, discovers, she takes her life. So there's this whole dark aspect to his past that now he has to confront. Now, just to put this in context, all of you know the story of Oedipus Rex. Or, you all know the story of Oedipus Rex. Sophocles, great, I mean, every, usually everybody is required to read that in high school, but 
Um, Sophocles' great trilogy, the Oedipus Rex and Oedip um, 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 the, the Daughter of the Sisters, um, it's the middle play, and then Oedipus at Colonus. Um, Oedipus um, is the king of thieves and wants to discover why thieves is um, suffering from a plague and he keeps pushing to get information and it, and it finally comes to light that he's the cause of it because he killed his father, the king on a crossroads before he came to Thebes and ended up marrying the queen without knowing that that was the father that he killed and the mother that he's sleeping with and he has two children. Um, Antigone, that's the middle one, Antigone and um, I can't remember the name of the other. But right at the beginning of our history is this, this great tragedy of, of, and that's where Freud, by the way, really, I mean, I'm not serious about this. Freud, Freud's almost all of his theories almost go back to that play. Before Sophocles, Aeschylus' Orestes trilogy is about the gods serving up their family to devour them, chopping them up and serving them as meals. So very early in the, in the literature of Western civilization, we have this sense of how ruthless families can be, the sins that get passed on from father to son, from son to, you know. And so here right now is Kaz and Ike debating whether to give up the land. And in the middle of this debate, we get this interruption, why? because it's not a part of the debate. They don't bring it up, but we know that this is what Ike carries. He snuck in, it's a part of him. And he does this a number of times, so even though the grammar may throw you off, I mean, what we're meant to see is that reality's not in neat sentences, that very often we'll be in the midst of something and something will just jump out. It's a part of what we do. Ike is struggling to make this argument that he is justified in what he's about to do to give up the land. Part of what he's covering or carrying is this discovery. He wants, he does not want to continue this curse. Okay, now this is crucial to see right now. Remember, section three ended with everything being lost. The dream, the enchantment, or to put it, this is a moment of disillusionment. All the things you hope for are gone. You're disillusioned. You're heavy, you're sad, you're depressed. The things you most count on are not there. Now, as if that wasn't hard enough, section four takes us into this when I, and what's the significance? He discovers this when? When he's 16. When he's 16, and what happened when he was 16? Sam died and- Sam died, died. old Ben died, lion. That is when everything was gone, he's discovering this. So I said, you know, I think before we started, I said, you think Moby Dick is dark, wait till we get to the middle of, <laughs> go, to, go down Moses. So here in the middle of this story is, is this painful discovery um, that his um, grandfather um, had sex, used a Negro slave, had sex, had a child, slept with that child, apparently had another child, that, that the blood runs through Tommy's turtle, and that the, the grief of having discovered that was so great that Eunice took her life. So this is what's, these are the skeletons, this is what's behind him. Um, let me just let, quickly turn to, t turn to 274. I hope this is it. Um, yeah. Um, they pick up, wait, wait, oh, by the way, let me, so you, so you see this, the, um, let's see, where does this go? Page 269, or my 269, that was all, and McCaslin, more men than that one, Buck and Buddy, to fumble bead that truth, so maze for them. Do you have that page? Yeah. What page? 268. 268. Middle of it. Mark that. I mean, I just put, that's the end of that section. So now we're returning to the exchange. That was all in the casual. More men than that. Are you all following? Yes. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the, remember we saw this in Fire in the Heart? This is an interlude. It, it's not quite an interlude. It's, it's a back history. 
that we know I carries within him. And now we're back to the exchange. Is everybody clear? Okay. So they go on, and I continues to, to, to carry the same line. And you know from what he said earlier, he thinks that the only way to see what he's doing is through the heart, because only the heart can know that truth. Kaz is pointing out the negative things. Um, um, and this is where Ike introduces the Abraham figure. I've got page 27 where he says, um, into a larger life than Abraham's and repudiating immolation. Remember, and he's, this is um, where McCasm says escape, and he says, all right, escape. You all have that line? Yes. No. Okay. I, we don't have time, but what, let me just pass over this very quickly. What happens here, on the very next page, where there's all the italic, italicized words, he says, whereupon he said, my name is Brown too, and the other so is mine, and he then mine or yours can't be because I'm against it. Do you all have that? Mm-hmm. It's in italics. Huh? Where is it? 271. 271? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Who, who, I think that isn't John, who's the Brown that, that's there at the beginning of the Civil War? John Brown, the Negress, mm-hmm. who, who, who was one of the first persons to provoke a fight. I think that's the Brown here. I'm not sure, but I, no, name is Brown too, and the other so is mine, because God is saying, so am I, because he identifies with each person, except God is saying, but I'm against it. What, he's, what is he against? The war. Because it's stupid. So he says, then where, where are you going with that gun? And the other told him in one sentence, one word, and he amazed. And God is asking, but you do this on your own. You did it on your, there's no parliament, no decision, no politics. I mean, if you read that, you'll see that. But what's follow, what follows then is really interesting because Kaz recalls a number of important historical events. It begins with that, well, actually the the major paragraph is Ashby on an afternoon's ride. It's the next page. What is it? 272. Uh He's describing what happens with the, the Confederate generals. And what we see is that every one of them is killed by their own men. Um, go down, Ashby on an afternoon, go down a few lines. Jackson on the plank road already rolled up the flank, which Hooker believed could not be turned, and waiting only for night to pass to continue the brutal and incessant slogging, which would fling that whole wing back into Hooker's lap, where he sat in a front gallery in Chance, Chancellorsville drinking rum toddies and telegraphing Lincoln that he had defeated Lee. He shot from among a whole covey of minor officers and in the blind night by one of his own patrols. Jackson shot by one of his own men. And he goes on to show that another, a couple of other major people were. And then he ends it by saying, um, by his own men in the dark, by mistake, just as Jackson was, his face to us, as God is going to show his face to us. What he's saying is, God shook, because Ike is saying, God will show his face to us. He always favors his people. And Kaz is going, are you kidding? God shows his face. Because he's giving example after example of Southerners who were destroyed by their own. Now what's going on? Where's that line where he says, what he says is the South is cursed. (coughs) Oh, on my 266, don't you see, he cried, don't you see? His whole land, the whole South is cursed and all of us who derive from it whom it ever suckled, white and black both lie under the curse. If any of you have ever read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, you know that after Brutus and Cassius kill Caesar, and there's a civil war, that was Rome's great civil war, that was the middle of its undoing. They kill Caesar, and in the battle against Mark Anthony and his forces, they're destroyed by their own actions because the ghost of Caesar appears, and they, and here's the, and they begin to misread everything. And on the basis of those misreadings, they undo themselves. Faulkner is showing us the same thing here, that, that the South is destroying itself right now. That the sin of slavery is so much greater than people want to admit. A civil war was fought. We were killing ourselves. If you know the Gettysburg Address or Lincoln's second inaugural, no, I mean, they're, I think they're two of the most profound, I think they're probably the most profound political documents ever written, but we're killing ourselves. Um, so here in the South, 
there is this brutal honesty of looking underneath to see that the sin of slavery was not just some political structure, that it deeply affected the lives of men and it led to these dark things. Um, let's leave it here because we're out of time. But I want to pick up here. So we're not done with four. So we'll stay with four and then do four and five next week and then we'll finish Good and Moses the following week. Yeah, I have a question about something that's not really, Go ahead. Probably not really important. Before you do, you all, you're all following what he's doing structurally with the language and these sort of interruptions. And, I, I want you to yeah. see this. Yeah, yeah. okay, good. <laughs> Sorry, Gene, go ahead. I think they're just probably looking at the almanac and saying, I don't know. I don't know. Well, there's that song, The Stars Fell on Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> not, on, not on Texas or, or Mississippi or.